This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where we discuss developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, and I run corporate communications here at Goldman. So today we're at the Goldman Sachs Builders and Innovators Conference in Santa Barbara. This is a conference where we pull together 100 intriguing entrepreneurs from all across the country and around the world. And today we're going to be joined by two of those entrepreneurs and also Greg Lemkow, our co-head of investment banking. Bryn Putnam is here, and she's the founder and CEO of Mirror, a fitness startup. And Ryan Peterson is here. He's the founder and CEO of Flexport, which is a logistics company. So thank you all for joining us. Great to be here. So Greg, give us a little context around kind of the state of entrepreneurship. You've been coming to this conference for a long time and been helping bank entrepreneurs for even longer. What's the environment like right now for startups and for funding? As you know, it's the eighth time we've done this conference. And the environment and atmosphere at the conference is indicative of the environment for entrepreneurship, which is hugely energizing, a bunch of great ideas. And it's been interesting to see the exchange amongst the entrepreneurs about what they're doing across so many different categories. I think the state of entrepreneurship generally is quite exciting right now. The public equity markets and the private equity markets are so focused on growth and attracting growth. And they're looking for new businesses and new business ideas and new categories that have been developed. And so to be able to be here and talk to the various people who've built these businesses and companies and have them engage with each other and share best practices and share problems and share challenges, quite exciting. Brian, Ryan, this is your first time at the conference? First time. Thank you for having us. Yeah, All right. first time. So talk a little bit just quickly about what your pitch is on, on your company. Brynn, let's start with you. Sure. Mirror is a nearly invisible interactive home gym. When it's off, it's a full-length mirror. And when it's on, it streams live and on-demand fitness classes. And as of last week, also one-on-one -on -one personal training for just $40 a session. Well, Flexport is a platform for global trade. We make it easier for companies to buy and sell products across borders, ship them by air, ocean, truck, and rail. Okay, cool. So, Bryn, you didn't start out as an entrepreneur. Talk a little bit about the path that took you to founding Mirror. I've spent my whole life in health and wellness, but started off as a professional dancer at the New York City Ballet when I was a teenager. Uh, went to Harvard, kept dancing professionally, and then got involved in fitness really as a side hustle, a way to make ends meet while I was dancing. When I retired, I opened a chain of fitness studios called Refine Method that are now about 10 years old. And learnings from Refine Method led to the creation of Mir about three years ago. So... This is your retirement plan. Absolutely. Doubling <laughs> <Awesome>. down. <laughs> Ryan, um, you were a little bit more business background and you've started another company. Talk a little bit about that and how you ended up starting Flexport. I've started a bunch of companies. Actually, I've never had a job other than I made a, I made pizza at Domino's when I was in high school. <laughs> I still reference Domino's pizza in executive committee meetings. I'm like, what? You were a pizza boy. My first business was importing stuff from China and selling it on the internet. So it wasn't a startup. We didn't call it a startup. We we're just trying to make money. What kind was, of stuff? Uh, motorcycles. <laughs> From there, I was very frustrated by like the experience of shipping stuff. I thought it was really difficult, for, especially for a small company, to deal with these big bureaucratic shipping companies. So I just eventually decided to start a company to compete with them, make so, it better for entrepreneurs. So what's the key trend that you're tapping into, Bryn? To me, uh, success in fitness today kind of focuses on three themes, I would say. Convenience, curation, and quality. And we're really tackling those by building the only direct channel into the home for original content via Mir. And, and Ryan, how about you? I mean, you described a little bit about the impetus for it, but what are the trends that businesses are looking for that the current market wasn't serving? There's a 
pretty much a lack of technology in international freight companies. So you'd like to be able to see where your stuff is, when is it going to arrive, what paperwork are you going to need, all the regulatory compliance things across borders. There's a huge amount of complexity. And I felt like, I've always felt like the industry, George Bernard Shaw has this quote. He says, every profession is a conspiracy against the laity. And it seems like freight forwarding is just the poster child for that. Where they're like lots of kinds of acronyms and weird terms that no one understands. And it seems like they're used to take advantage of the customer. So we thought a combination of technology and then a really customer-obsessed culture, we try to help our customers win, that you could actually make a much better version of the service. Who are your customers? How did you start? And how did you start building your market? We've now got about 10,000 companies that trade on the platform. So it's kind of 1,000 companies in the U.S., a few hundred in Europe, and then all of their factories around the world. We connect companies to their factories, make it seamless for them to trade and transact freight shipments. So it's a lot of up-and-coming brands, a lot of fast-moving, sort of like new direct-to-consumer brands, and then more traditional companies that are trying to transform themselves, make themselves more agile and less slow-moving. So companies like Brent's, how did you start marketing? How did you really build your customer base? You know, I come from a bricks and mortar business. My first studio was started with $15,000 of my own savings and studio one had to pay for studio two, pay for studio three. So I really believe in the customer flywheel. And I think that you build a great customer flywheel by being a customer obsessed business. So for us, it was really thinking not as sort of a tech first company, but as a customer first company about what kind of content, what kind of community, what kind of um, interaction would really inspire our customers to tell five friends. Um, and that's how we sort of have thought about building the business. And Ryan, did you fund this with $15,000 or was this My your... first business, yeah, I borrowed $15,000 from my mom, actually. Uh, <laughs> that was... How'd that work out? Uh, I paid her back, I paid her back. Okay, good. <laughs> We're even. You can go home um, for Thanksgiving. <laughs> yeah, uh, but and then I uh, started a number of businesses along the way. One of them is still going. It's pretty successful and quite profitable. So that one was able to fund Flexport for the first four years. People don't know this, but I was the only employee of Flexport for four years, trying really hard to get something off the ground. And I, I probably put, before we raised any capital, yeah, almost a half a million dollars into it from personal, from money that I had made in the previous companies. Eventually, I went on and raised tons of money. But in the beginning, we were very bootstrapped and self-financed. And what was the pitch that worked with investors? Mostly I showed them the size of the market. It's a multi-trillion dollar market. Like literally it's like 10% of GDP is global logistics. And the top 100 players, actually I bet I could go further down the list. I never bothered. I counted the top 100 and none of them were founded after Netscape. So you're <laughs> instead of saying, look, it's a huge market with kind of sclerotic companies that haven't been reinvented for a long time. So, Greg, you deal with a lot of companies like this. How do these narratives fit in with your own experience helping startups get Yeah, well, it's fascinating because the, the stories and the companies are quite different, but the themes are consistent in terms of what we see. So I think what Brent has tapped into around health and wellness and unique experiences that consumers are looking for is exactly what the market's looking for right now. And the kind of, you know, I like the concept of customer flywheel, but as a user of her product and knowing people who use it and love it and the word of mouth and the way that spreads is, is quite impressive. And that's exactly what investors are looking for. They're looking for products that people are passionate about. On Ryan's side, if you think about what investors are looking to fund, they look for TAM. Probably there's no bigger total addressable market than what he's going after if it's 10% of global GDP. It's a pretty significant market. And can the existing business be disrupted? and whether it's with technology or a different approach. And so I, these themes are quite consistent to what we see all day long. I'll just say one aside, and you can cut this out of your podcast if you want, but I'm laughing at your comment about 
regulations. It was with Elon, and he was like, he's at one of the end of these crazy Elon Musk discussions, and he was talking about the flamethrower that they built. And I don't know, like every once in a while, they try to sell stuff to make extra money at Tesla, and they did Tesla hats one time, and so they sit around, they have an idea, it's like, why don't we build a flamethrower? Because I used to watch that movie Spaceballs when I was a kid, and when you're leaving the store, like, do you want to get a flamethrower? So they get someone to design a flamethrower, and it was actually just a blowtorch, but they put a bunch of stuff around it, it looked like a flamethrower. So they actually developed this product, and they're going to go sell this thing for like, I don't know, a couple thousand dollars each, and they're ready to sell it, and you can't ship a flamethrower in the U.S. There's, there's restrictions against shipping a flamethrower. Flexport so, could probably find a so, so they <laughs> So they call it not a flamethrower. They literally name the thing not a flamethrower. They get around the thing, and they sell out. And like he made, yeah, I think it was like the most money he made that quarter was on selling like 25,000 flamethrowers or something like that. So I can, I can imagine. I bought just, one of them. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> Did you really? Yeah, my wife is not pleased. <laughs> Must be fun in the backyard. <laughs> So we talked last year, Greg, about the blurring between tech and really almost any industry. A lot of companies now are obviously tech companies. But how would investors think about tech company? Because you've seen some companies that claim to have revolutionary technology and really didn't. What are investors looking for in terms of how technology is used in the companies? So many of the companies we see today are tech-enabled, and you almost have to be. I can't imagine trying to compete in this marketplace and either disrupt a market or address a big consumer base without using technology. I think there is an interesting challenge with evaluating some of these companies and valuing some of these companies, because companies like to say that they're tech companies because they think it's going to get them a higher valuation. And the reality is it's just tech enabled. And I would just encourage all entrepreneurs is to use technology to help your company grow. But ultimately, your company is going to grow and be mature one day. And so I wouldn't position it as a tech company. If it's not a tech company, I'd position it as to what it ultimately is to your end consumers. And the growth trajectory and profitability profile you're able to build will speak for itself over time. So, Brent, there's obviously a lot of technology behind your product. So how do you describe the technology or do you just lead with the wellness? Peloton has proven to be a very interesting data point to that point that I think a lot of the pricing fluctuations that we're seeing now is because the market doesn't like uncertainty and there is a lack of clarity as to is it an e-commerce company that sells bikes? Is it a SaaS business? Is it a media company? And when you look at the company, only 20% of its revenue comes from the subscription. Most of it comes from the hardware. And so I think for us, that's something that we're really acutely aware of. We're building a content agnostic platform with an eye towards how we can add additional revenue per user onto our baseline subscription over time. So for us, launching personal training last week was about adding value for our members, such that the subscription is secure, but also thinking about how we can increase the lifetime value such that our enterprise value truly reflects that of a best-in-class SaaS business. And would you open source it or would you try to serve only your own products through the technology? Yeah, I think it's a phasing issue. Going back to sort of the top themes in fitness, I think our customer relies on us to be the curator of great experiences. And the way that we can do that is by owning those experiences in the early days and being able to learn and iterate quickly. And then over time, we imagine that a smaller and smaller percentage of those experiences will be mere original and they'll be made through partners. Your business, obviously, you talked a little bit about how the incumbents are a little unsophisticated about how they've used technology. How do you go in and describe what role technology plays in and how it makes the customer experience better? I agree totally with what you say. Ultimately, you're going to be valued at a sort of like discounted cash flow basis on some, on some time horizon. You have to be. And, and I think the technology shouldn't increase your multiple, except to the extent that it increases your free cash flow over time and makes things stickier or something. We do call ourselves a technology company, but also we're a freight company and we're not embarrassed to be both. And I think it's sort of like, is light a wave or a particle? Like, uh, you know, like, I don't know, it's, you have to be both. We use tech to do a few things. It's a network. So you want to connect companies with their suppliers, make that seamless. So communications, you need technology to make that work. Really good chat function and it's in context about the shipment, what's going on. 
as well as with their underlying asset owners who are moving it, so trucking companies, ocean carriers, how do you connect everybody in one place to make it simpler? Um, and I think at the end of the day, simplicity is what you're looking for in your supply chain. That means different things. Like if you're a very small company, it's like, please teach me this and make it simple. Explain some of these terms, make it a little easier to handle the regulatory stuff and the just the get good pricing. If you're a big company, it's I've got to try to meet customer demand. The customer expectation is now two-day delivery, heading towards two-hour, heading towards two-minute, like the end consumer. And that's a really complicated supply chain setup. In the old world, you could have one distribution center in Memphis and serve everybody from one site. And now you're if you want two-hour delivery, you got to have 50-plus sites in every neighborhood. And that's a lot of complexity to coordinate. So how do you simplify that and make it manageable? And our, our tech helps with that a lot. So it depends on the scale of the company, what people are using us for. A lot of the entrepreneurs that we've heard from here talk a lot about how heavily failed and how it was awful and then somehow turned around. Have you had moments like that? Did you identify with that? Are there moments where you felt like giving up or were there moments where you felt like, I got it, we're making it? Or is it too early to tell? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, I signed the documents for my C round of funding the day that my son was born from the hospital. So I, I literally closed my first round of money and then two weeks later went to my first office and with a team of zero thought, you know, what did I sign up for exactly here? So I think that's certainly a low moment. But I think fundamentally when you have like clear mission vision and you're the type of person where you see a wall and your thought is, how do I get through that wall? I just can't imagine operating any differently when I hit those moments. It's just sort of like in my DNA. So Ryan, is there a moment you thought all of a sudden Flexport's really going to take off or are you still getting there? Flexport has been fairly easy compared to my previous companies, which were like way harder. If you have a good business, sometimes it's way easier than a really hard business. It attracts more talent. Success just sort of compounds on itself. But Actually, I was working with my older brother. I did have a boss technically. Was my my brother uh, was that with this motorcycle company, and we would have many, many spirals of death where you don't have a lot of money. What we would do is buy products. We didn't have enough money to buy the entire container load of motorcycles, so we put thirty percent down and then try to sell them while they were on the water. <laughs> Hope that you had enough cash to pay the factory by the time they arrived. And then if you didn't have enough cash, well, you start racking up fees at the port of like. So now, because you don't have cash, you're generating fees, uh, and yeah, a lot of that. It's a um, entrepreneurship. It's not fun. <laughs> it's, I like I, we said, we had uh, some celebrities here have started companies. I'm like, why? You're, already, you're rich, but everything's easy. What are you doing? <laughs> well, it was interesting. One of those celebrities talked a little bit about how she recharges. Do you have an opportunity to recharge? Do you think about it that way? I mean. When you decide to build a business, you're making the commitment that you're never going to have a checklist where you're going to say, like, mere check finished for the day. I mean, it's just constant. So to me, it's having a business that I love and a team that I love so that when I am very much working continuously, it doesn't really feel like work. It feels like spending time solving problems with people that I like spending time with. So I'm, I'm attempting to integrate sort of more pauses into my day, um, but I, I do find that if you love what you do, then it doesn't really feel like work. Is that your experience? Or just working with your brother was enough? That would drive me crazy. <laughs> well, he's but... my older brother. So there's like an implied threat of violence in every conversation. Uh, I've had to take better care of myself to get bigger and have more responsibility, more employees looking up to you and stuff and more sleep and 
less alcohol, try to take really take care of myself has been a really important because that stuff was leading to me to not have exi- have too much anxiety. And I think anxiety is pretty toxic. You got to get it out of your bloodstream. So Greg, you have a big job, big family. Do you ever disconnect? It's hard to disconnect. It is. The job is 24-7. When I try to get away from it intermittently, if you're spending time with my wife and four kids, you try to be all there for them when you're there. But sometimes you get pulled away and you can't be there and then you come back. But it's hard. And in terms of recharging at the risk of pandering to a fellow podcaster, exercise is phenomenal. And the product, <laughs> for those who have not used it, the mirror is awesome. It truly is. And, I, and I, I'll do everything. I used to go run all the time. I have a Peloton, which I love, and it gives you a great cardio workout. But when you're done with the workout in the mirror, by the way, those trainers are on you the entire time. So if you want to disconnect, you're disconnected because you can't be thinking about anything other than this trainer who is staring at you from <laughs> or you the might mirror. die. And you're done with it and you feel like you have a total full body workout. So it's an awesome product. It's a great way to recharge. That's some, some excellent marketing. I was um, going to say, that so, will be rebroadcast for the foreseeable <laughs> <laughs> future. <laughs> so Brim, what's your biggest goal in near medium term, like next six months, 12 months or so? Where do you want the business to be? when we're back here in next October. We view ourselves as a media company and and in order for us to really be a true media company, we need to have as many mirrors and homes as possible. So for year two for us, it's simplistic, but it's just accelerating the speed with which we get more mirrors into more homes. We also start to think a little bit more about how we can expand our subscription revenue through introducing premium content like personal training. And you'll start to see us moving beyond fitness um, into other categories, kind of like dipping our toe in the water as we start to learn what makes a great mirror experience outside of our, our core offering. What do you expect for Flexport over the next six to 12 months? We've been in a grow at all costs, get massive. It's a very scale driven business. While keeping customers satisfied, we have a pretty high NPS. So those have been the two metrics. We're now the seventh largest freight forwarder out of 6,000 on the Asia to US lane. There's been a lot of chaos with trade wars, a lot of uncertainty introduced. We're now paying a billion dollars a year to the federal government in tariffs that we pay on behalf of our customers. And so a big shift for Flexport is those two things. It's one, how do we help our customers respond to trade war, which means expanding geographically from just China focused to all of Southeast Asia, oh. South India, South Asia, um, building up global capabilities. And we were heavily concentrated on China to US as a company. That's one. And then two is really look at unit economics. How do we generate cash so that we can reinvest in the business? Um, I think we've gotten to scale. We always said we've got to be at scale in order to have the economics work in our favor. And now as the number seven player, at some point you have to, you've got the minimum viable scale and you need to start figuring out, okay, how do we make money? The game that I'm playing with our team is how do you make money without raising prices to your customers, which is a really fun game. And uh, you'd be surprised how many people can't come up with a creative answer to that, such as uh, cut costs. (laughs) 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 So unemployment is pretty low and it's especially low for skilled workers. A lot of entrepreneurs talk about the struggle for talent. Have you found it hard to get good people? Or what's been successful in terms of getting good people? No, I mean, I think to Ryan's point, when you have a good business that's growing fast, people are really excited to work with you. So we've been really fortunate that we've been able to find find good people and grow our team pretty quickly. And you feel like this is easier than 
convincing well, no, people but to the, the uh, hardest thing is talent and how high the salaries are and san francisco is our headquarters we've got yeah, like which five. is a tough market it's really tough and it's really tough because even if you pay a lot people still can't see the future of home ownership and settling down and it's like you need some level of certainty in your life to be satisfied and if you're looking forward you go well, i'm doing really well but i can't buy a house here so it's a frustrating situation for me as an entrepreneur to watch that and like see my team suffer through that. So we've been doing a lot of hiring in other markets and had a lot more success. But in our core, which is where 200 of our 300 technologists are in San Francisco, it's tough to scale. So Greg, as a close observer of startups and entrepreneurship, what does the future look like, particularly over the next 12 to 24 months? Yeah, the future of entrepreneurship is exciting and just being around people like these two have started their own businesses and the passion you feel for what they're trying to do and what they're trying to build. I think the ability to start a business and scale it, given where technology is now, is phenomenal and only growing. And you can come up with a great idea and you can reach the world incredibly quickly, as long as it's a good idea and then you go execute on it. So I think it's a great time to be starting a business. As they both observe, it's not as glamorous as it sounds. It's hard work and there's failure along the way, but if you've got the right business model and the right people behind it, you're gonna be able to be successful. So if you had one piece of advice for someone who's starting off, what would it be? This is sort of in the weeds, but there's a formula for raising money, for building your first deck and how you pitch and who you pitch to, and you should follow the formula. As an entrepreneur, you're often trying to be creative about how you solve problems, but there are certain things that have very specific rules and regulations, and you should abide by them, especially when it comes to building your first deck. Okay, that's interesting. Well, how about you? I always tell entrepreneurs that you really need to know why you're doing something and make sure that you're sufficiently pissed off at the status quo <laughs> and frustrated and like by the lack of whatever it is that you want to bring into the world, that if it's just to make money, the odds of making money doing a startup are pretty low. Like on a risk-adjusted basis, you're better off getting a job at a really great company if you're just trying to make money. And then if it's just to make money, pretty quickly you're going to give up because it's going to take a long time. So that was for me, and one was I wanted to solve a problem, and two, I wanted to learn stuff. And I think as an entrepreneur, you get to learn so much about the whole range of the human experience, everything from psychology and leadership and problem-solving creativity, accounting, finance, <laughs> technology, everything. So if, if you're into learning and solving problems, then it's a great thing to start a company. If it's to make money, like just definitely just don't do it. <laughs> Not that money's bad. Money's awesome, but you should do it else. In it's easier way. ways to make it. Yes. Go work for Goldman. Greg, <laughs> there's the pitch. There's if you advice. want to make money, come work for Goldman. And Greg, you can solve problems in Lima County and all these great things. <laughs> Greg, what problems have you solved today? No, what, what advice would you give to some entrepreneurs as they think about starting up? Have passion. Be committed to what you're doing. Know what you're trying to solve. I think Ryan's advice is you're trying to go start up a company saying, I want to go start a billion dollar company and, and sell it for X. It's, that's not going to work. I mean, you may get lucky, but you need to have a real business idea that's differentiated. It's something that you feel passionate about and you've got to show up two weeks after giving birth and, and be able like, okay, here I go. What am I going to do? There's going to be dark days and tough days and you've got to find people around you that can give you independent advice and perspective and tell you when you're going wrong. And by the way, sometimes you listen to them and sometimes you don't listen to them. All the discussions I've had with entrepreneurs, it can be really lonely and it can be difficult. And so trying to find people who can help guide you through that. And I think one of the great things about this conference is entrepreneurs building a network amongst themselves and being able to talk to each other about these same issues that they all face. All right. Well, thank you both for joining us and really enjoyed the conversation. Thank you. Thanks for hosting us. Thank all you. Right. That concludes this episode of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. 
Thanks for listening. And if you enjoyed the show, we hope you subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave a rating and comment. And for more from Goldman Sachs experts, as well as influential policymakers, academics, and investors on market-moving topics, be sure to check out our new podcast, Top of Mind at Goldman Sachs, hosted by Allison Nathan, a senior strategist in the firm's research division. This podcast was recorded on October 17, 2019. The information contained in this recording was obtained from publicly available sources and has not been independently verified by Goldman Sachs. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this recording, and any liability as a result of this recording is expressly disclaimed. This recording should not be relied upon to evaluate any potential transaction. Goldman Sachs is not giving investment advice by means of this recording, and this recording does not establish a client relationship with Goldman Sachs.